Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Rabbi Josh Uter. Rabbi Uter was ordained in 2003 from Yeshiva University's Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Theological Seminary. He also holds a BA in Computer Science from YU, an MA in Talmudic Studies from YU, and Master's Degree in Social Sciences from the University of Chicago. Rabbi Uter is also an alumnus of Yeshiva Taratzion. He has served as the rabbi from the Stanton Street Shul on New York's historic Lower East Side from 2008 to 2014 when he moved to Israel. He is currently a member of the Rabbinical Council of America, the International Rabbinic Fellowship, co-chairing the Ethics Committee, and the Rabbis Without Borders Fellowship. Rabbi Uter is an award-winning blogger and writes and lectures on various issues pertaining to law, theology, and society through the unique perspective of a second-generation rabbi with diverse personal and professional experiences and interests. In 2012, Rabbi Uter was acknowledged by the National Jewish Outreach Program as one of the top 10 Jewish influencers from creative and strategic use of social media to positively impact the Jewish community. In 2014, was named one of PC Magazine's top 100 people to follow. And in 2018, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency listed Rabbi Uter as one of the top 50 Jews to follow on Twitter. He has also guest blogged for JDate and contributed to Jewish Values Online. In addition to his academic pursuits, Rabbi Uter has worked as an applications developer for Information Builders and J.P. Morgan Chase. He has also created and maintains www.jewishguitarchords.com and has taught a class on Jewish guitar through the New York City Guitar School. Without further ado, Rabbi Josh Uter. Thank you for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. Rabbi Uter, you launched a series called Sacred Slogans that addressed what you explained as oversimplified or distorted phrases and idioms used to promote various agendas. Can you explain, um, just starting with the most, I think the most popular one, which is Elu Ve'elu, Divrei Elohim Chaim, and Shivim Panim La Torah, for example, and kind of take us on a journey through all of these idioms? Mm-hmm. Sure. So one of the reasons I got into this was I found people would just cite you know, little phrases or snippets from either, uh, let's say, Bible or Talmud, Torah uh, Tav or Torah Peh, as, well, this is authoritative and, you know, put a stamp on any conversation and you can't really argue with that. Yet, when you actually look at what these stadiums are, statements are in context, uh, they can sometimes mean something different. And in some cases, the exact opposite of how people are using them colloquially. And to me, that was, you know, can be very dishonest depending on how it's being pushed. And in some cases disingenuous if the people don't really believe in what they're saying. So for me, I group Elu Ve'elu Divelochim Chaim and Ayim Padam Latorah together because they're both used uh, to, I guess, claim unearned legitimacy as to the validity of certain opinions. Um, when people will say, here's my opinion on something, you counter it with whatever many sources or any other arguments, you just throw your hands up and say, well, you know, 70 faces of Torah, so this must be valid, which isn't necessarily true. Um, the origin of Shivim Panvim Torah comes from uh, Dvaram Rabbah, uh, where it's mentioned um, 
there's a comparison to 70 shekels of, uh, okay, so can you see it? Yes. All right, so here, um, it, it's with uh, one of the vessels in the Mishkan, it's made after 70 shekel, and it's you know just as the numerical value of yayin is 70, so too there's shivim panim la Torah. There's 70 facets is a good way of interpreting panim la Torah. Um, but it's also in connection with uh, the one ka'ara, that one dish, and it says, that this Torah is still supposed to be one. So on one hand, you've got 70 ways of interpreting, but they're also supposed to be one. And, you know, there's, you know, we can spend a much, uh, you know, a lot of time, there's a huge discussion in academic literature about, you know, uh, the fancy terms are monosemy or polysemy of a different uh, range of acceptable opinions versus is there only one way of understanding things or how uh, everything was given from one shepherd and the degree to which, you know, we can have these various disagreements. But what I want to point out is even if you say ayin panim la Torah, there are 70 ways of interpreting the Torah. There was a joke that I heard once, I forget in whose name, that they're not 71 and that there are certain interpretations that are actually, for lack of a better term, illegal, if not wrong. So for example, just as you have ayin panim la Torah, you have 70 facets of Torah, there's also uh, injunctions against being mekalep panim batorah shalok halacha. Again, you have that word of panim la Torah, these faces or facets of Torah. So if you're going to start having an interpretation that runs counter to the law, well, that's just incorrect and an incorrect teaching. Um, and you'll find various uh, interpretation, um, various statements about being panim or being morim uh, Another example I give of this is the Zakei Mamre, the rebellious elder, where according to uh, Mishnah and Gemara, the rebellious elder is someone who gives an interpretation of a, a, a verse that runs counter to how the Sanhedrin decided, this is how we're going to apply this first lahalacha. And once someone gives that interpretation and is moren, instructs other people to follow in accordance with that teaching, you now cross the line to being a zakein mamre. Now, could there be some validity to that interpretation? Sure, but once you start instructing people to do X, Y, or Z based off of your interpretation that was not ratified by the Sanhedrin, you're now actually doing something wrong. So simply throwing up, hey, you've got lots of opinions. Okay, well, yeah, it's an opinion, but what makes that opinion valid and legitimate? And I'd also have to ask, what is the purpose that you're trying to convey of this particular interpretation? So, you know, I could, like one ridiculous example I give is if I turn, uh, if I interpret a Pasuk to say, oh, this means you should support the New York Yankees, right? That's obviously going to be a ridiculous interpretation because you know, clearly they didn't exist. But once I start saying, well, this is what this verse means, and this is how I'm going to poskin based on my personal interpretation of this verse, well, that's already crossing a potential line in my opinion. Hmm. Uh, I would also add that when pe people will use Ein Panem Torah, even they don't believe that interpretations are unlimited or there aren't any uh, restrictions to what someone can say. Because almost everyone I know uh, in all the rabbinic or Jewish circles will say, here is a line that you're not allowed to cross, or here's an opinion of Judaism that is 
objectively incorrect and they are doing Judaism wrong. The second you say that, though, you're also denying that their interpretation is correct. So even those who would say Ayin Panam Latora would still have their own limits for it. So the real question isn't what is the range of acceptable opinions? It's how do you define that range? Like where are the boundaries? Why yeah. does this count and this not count? As opposed to throwing out and saying, oh, we're open to you know pluralism or different sort of ideas when really the big fight is over the boundaries of where Judaism are. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, I often hear this, um, this line used for mostly for, uh, you know, justifying very wacky ideas and just saying like, it's all, everything is Torah. You know, you hear stuff like that from people all the time. And it's so frustrating because it's, it's, it's like, it's lazy, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I definitely, yeah. Because you're saying, well, this gives me the right to pretty much say what I want and you have to accept me as legitimate. When the answer is no, like, what do I have to say that this is a legitimate opinion? Like, you can do research, you can make the best case for it, and then we can have a serious discussion. But to assume a priori that I have to take this opinion seriously or this opinion is valid is, in my opinion, incorrect and not in line with even the original of um, uh, Ayn Padam Latora. When you get to a similar idiom of Elu Ve'elu Diver Elikim Chaim, I think it becomes much more stark uh, because it's used in two type uh, two contexts that I know of in Chazal. One is a midrash agada at the be uh, towards the beginning of Gittin, where there's a um, there is a dispute over how do you read a pasuk. And uh, there's a discussion about Eliyahu says, uh, God is arguing over, uh, you know, uh, there's a dispute in Shemayim over what's shot in the Pasuk. And the answer is, well, really, both are correct. Where, um, uh, one second, pause. Just want to look up the full uh, source here of uh, Pilegish Bukiv. I just want to make sure it's 19.2. Uh, okay. So here in the beginning of the story, Pilegesh Begiva, uh, the Pilegesh, you know, leaves. And according to the Gemara, there's a dispute over why. Uh, and is it, was there, you know, something to do with a fly or was it a hair? And the Gemara actually resolves it by saying, actually, both are true that there was a fly and a hair, but, you know, they just kind of stacked up on each other. So there, Elu Elu Diver Lakim Chaim on a Midrash Agada worked because there was some harmonization of these two opinions that they could both be technically correct. Uh, but that doesn't always work for Midrash Agada either. There's a dispute over Paro at the beginning of Shemot of Yosef. There's a dispute whether or not that was a new king or that was the same king uh, who just for intentionally forgot about Yosef. Um, and they're different uh, with the different opinions. You have sources for each one. But as a matter of fact, both cannot be true. You can't have A and not A. Both exist simultaneously. Either he was a new king or he wasn't a new king. So even with Elu Ve'elu, as it comes to um, Midrash Agada, there isn't a whole lot at stake. But even then, you know, sometimes you can harmonize different opinions. You might be able to say they're both valid opinions, even though they both cannot exist simultaneously. The other context where Elu is mentioned that has a lot more at stake is the machloka between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. Um, and, you know, 
lot discussing, uh, you know, where it's, you know, turned into like there were two Torah behind it. And ultimately the halacha was resolved um, like Beit Hillel. Uh, you can set aside, you know, why for a bit, but the, uh, you know, the way that the Gemara um, even phrases it is, um, and uh, their Abbat call and echo comes out and says, that, you know, both of them are the words of the living God and the law is like Beit Hillel. The way that we tend to uh, it, like, discuss this verse is the exact opposite, where this is the halacha, but there are multiple good opinions. The language, or at least the phrase, as stated in the Gemara is, these and those are both the word of the living God, and the halacha is like Beit Hillel, meaning, yeah, sure, there could be legitimacy to certain opinions, but when it comes time to actual halacha, you follow Beit Hillel. This is the way the halacha works. The Yushami, interestingly enough, is a little more emphatic. Where they uh, in the Yushami, it's not the halacha kibet hillel, it's aval halacha kibet hillel, where you have sort of the negation of the previous clause. Where yes, both of these statements are the words of the living God, but the law is like Beit Hillel. It says aval halacha kibet hillel olam. The halacha is always like Beit Hillel. Yeah, there are exceptions, but fine. But again, this very idiom that's supposed to be about pluralism is one about rejecting practically the opinions of Beit Shammai, such that you're not allowed to follow Beit Shammai. And you, you shall me is also really strict on this, where it says, uh, you're actually worthy of death for following Beit, uh, Beit Shammai over Beit Hillel. And uh, you have the Mishnah in Brachot where Rabbi Tarfon, when it comes to reciting Kriyat Shema, um, instead of, uh, not just instead of, but he, uh, Mishnah in Brachot 1.3 uh, records a dispute between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai over the recitation of Kriyat Shema, where according to Beit Shammai, you're supposed to recite the Shema lying down in the evening and recite it standing up in the morning. Beit Hillel interprets uvashach b'chav kumecha, when you lie down and when you get up, to refer to the time, as opposed to your physical orientation. Rabbi Tarfon uh, has a story case where, where he said he was traveling on the road, he lied down at night to be Yote Beit Shammai, and he put himself in danger, and his colleagues, the other Chachamim, were not sympathetic. They said, you would have been deser you deserved your fate because you violated the opinion of Beit Hillel. Now, note that you could actually fulfill both Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai together by reciting it at night lying down. Um, but the way Reb Tarfon does it is, you know, you followed this opinion in opposite, or at least giving Beit Shammai halachic credence, which you shouldn't have done, because once the law is like Beit Hillel, you follow Beit Hillel. So even, you know, accounting for Elu Ve'elu Diver Lokim Chaim when it comes to halacha, but that in its own context means you don't accept every opinion practically, only however halach is decided. Now, how halach is decided is a much bigger conversation, but the point that I wanted to stress here is the very idiom that people use for pluralism in the context of certainly uh, the Yushalmi, but I would say also in the Bavli, is used to negate pluralism, where you can say, yes, there's an opinion that might be technically valid, but you're not allowed to follow it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that really clears things up. Okay, so the next idea I want to discuss with you is the phrase Telem Elohim, which is something that I also feel is misunderstood by a lot of people. Yeah, it's, 
and, and here almost, you know, I, I, I don't want to say intentionally so, because I'm not sure if people really looked into it as, you know, they would for a lot of other ideas that become very common uh, for certain, uh, I'm trying to have a good word for this, for certain people, the idea of Tzel Melokim, uh, that all of mankind is uh, created in the image of God, is a foundational theological position and can be the basis for a type of Jewish humanism. Because unlike something like the Haftel Arecha Kamocha, which uh, was something uh, had to sort of fill in later, uh, it's a lot easier to say, well, the Haftel Arecha Kamocha only applies to Jews. Uh, the whole idea of Tzel Melokim is, well, this is supposed to apply to everyone. All of humanity is created in the image of God, and that should have certain implications for how we treat other people. And I want to stress that I, I'm not going to endorse treating people poorly, uh, but I would like to you know, say, well, is that really such a definitive position within Torah, either you know, Torah Shebechtav or Torah Shebaal Peh? Um, in Torah Shebechtav, in the Bible, we see no mention of this idea after Bereshit 9.6. Uh, and oddly enough, this verse is talking about killing murderers. So like I've seen uh, uh, this idea of Tzalem Elohim cited in opposition to the death penalty, you know, why Jews should oppose the death penalty because we're all created in the image of God, despite the fact that one of the only usages that you have, in fact, the last usage in the Torah you have of Tzalem Elohim is talking about executing murderers, right? So it almost seems to be, you know, not in spite of the death penalty, but like, uh, not in, it's uh, not in spite of Tzalmokim, but because of it. And you know, exactly how that gets reconciled is a much longer conversation. But at the very least, you know, that usage of it in this context also goes against the explicit text that you have. Um, and even just dealing with uh, who has Tzalmokim, there's a range of opinions within uh, Chazal, or at least within Midrashim, that yes, there are opinions that say it applies to everyone. Um, another Midrash uh, seems to indicate that only that uh, everyone after uh, Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, were created in Tzal Melokim. Another Midrash in, from Midrash Rabbah says uh, it stopped at uh, Dor Enosh. And then we started, uh, one opinion says we started looking like apes. Another opinion says it was uh, other only Adam Harishon uh, was created B'Tzal Melokim, whereas the rest of us are copies of copies. And there would even be another read uh, based off of Gemar and Bava Metzia 114, where Rav Shimon Bar Yochai uh, excludes Gentiles from the category of Adam uh, in the context of um uh, the graves of uh, non-Jews not uh, imparting tuma, not imparting impurity. So according to that opinion, if uh, Gentiles are not included under this category of Adam, then logically they would also be out of the category of Tzalem Elohim. So even with you know that of is it universal, that's not really, um, you know, <laughs> that's by far a given within the text of Chazal. Um, or at least, again, based on the Midrashim, um, and even uh, uh, Bavli as well as uh, men, um, reference in there about how only Adam Harishon was Bitzel Melokim, and everyone else just, again, being copies of copies. Um, so even just with that uh, primary um, 
assumption that Selim Elohim is something that is shared by all humanity is in no way a given within rabbinic literature. Um, and you know, we can discuss a lot more about what constitutes Selim Elohim. How did Chazal apply it, which really wasn't a whole lot. Um, a whole lot of uh, areas where it came out. But I, one opinion that I think is worth citing is uh, the uh, opinion of Ben Azai, who is the one who said, Selam Elohim is uh, Klal Gadol Bataran, where he disagrees with Rebbe Akiva, who said, Vahaftalarecha uh, Kamocha is the Klal Gadol, and which one is the better or bigger general principle. Where for Ben Azai, it seemed to have been very much towards procreation. Uh, where he says, uh, whoever um, doesn't have children, it's ki'ilu shofech damim umimaet demut. that whoever uh, kills someone, uh, whoever doesn't have children, it's as if they committed murder and also diminishes the divine image uh, of God. And, you know, that's a you know, pretty big deal there. But the way you would sort of fulfill Salam Elohim would be by just having more people. Um, again, mm -hmm. according to the opinion of the one who puts Salam Elohim as the great klal, you know, this could have implications for other halachot, which you're not going to see, like, say, abortion. Now, should it? Probably, in my opinion, probably not. But if you're going to take the rabbinic idiom or the biblical idiom as it was applied by Chazal, you would lead, you would wind up with some different conclusions than the way it is often presented. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I like, for example, I, one that stands out to me is if you open the Tanya, um, it seems to be taking the approach of, um, you know, Adam, the reason why Jews have, let's say, higher souls, which I, I definitely disagree with this, but the, they say that, you know, the Balatanya says that uh, because they have Tzalem Elohim, right, from Adam, but the truth of the matter is, you can make the argument the other way, that Adam is the father of all of mankind, and it applies to everybody, so, but I'm assuming he's going according to um, Rabbi Shimon that you mentioned before. Uh, again, you know, there are a lot of things that are open to interpretation, um, but I would say a, a lot would depend on what are you, tr what are the statements that you're making in the name of Judaism? What does it believe? And what are you trying to do in terms of pushing um for the conclusions of how you expect people to act based on the way you're interpreting this idiom, as opposed to the way, say, it's described in Torah or the way it's described in the Talmud. Not to say it can't be done, but it's a very different, uh, it's a very different conversation that you're having. Um, people would also say Tselem Elohim is immutable, uh, that once you have it, it can't be you know, taken away from you. There are other passages that seem to indicate it might be. Um, for one example, you've got an uh, opinion of Rav Yochanan Megillah, it's forbidden uh, to stare intently at the image of a wicked uh, person. Now, if that Adam still has Tzalem Elohim, you can also ask why, you know, or what that means. And, you know, these are just very large overviews of, you know, the issues. Each one of these topics is really a very long shear that I'm trying to condense into a few minutes. Sure. sure. Um, you know, but like, you know, like I mentioned at the beginning of Tzalem Elohim, the fact that Torah has a death penalty for so many things, including murderers in the name of Tzalem Elohim, you certainly put things in a particular context, not to mention, um, you know, the wars of destruction against Amalek or Midian and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's, you know, the, the point isn't that, you know, opinions are necessarily wrong, though I would say, you know, some might be. 
but it's in reducing these concepts to here's what I say it means and all of these other opinions, you know, from, you know, the sources that I'm still signing. Well, it's as if they don't exist or, you know, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it, things are generally a lot more complicated than a lot of people are willing to admit or willing to say publicly. And I don't think it's impossible to have these conversations. Just, I wish people were a little more judicious in how they presented uh, their ideas and how they would talk about Judaism, especially when it comes to applying to contemporary politics that may or may not have analogs, you know, uh, from Torah. Very, very good. That was very uh, um, clarifying. I think what you said really encapsulates, you know, all everything I was thinking um, on the topic. So I want to jump into the next topic, which is or Lagoim. Yeah. Uh, light light so, on the nations. Because this, this is also something that you know, gets thrown around. Yeah. So the, the funny thing about Or Lagoim is it's uh it, it doesn't exist. Meaning, you know, if you quote things like Selma Okim, like, okay, at least I have, you know, a Pasuk where I can point to. Uh, but nowhere do you find the idiom of or like Oyim in Torah, let alone as it's an imperative, here's what you should be. Um, there's a passage that I found that explained this well uh, from Dr. David Ariel, who uh, wrote a book about what Jews believe, uh, where in his words, uh, in the 18th century, the founders of the reform movement began to play down the role of the commandments and exalt the ethical dimensions of Judaism. The change in emphasis within Reform Judaism was evident in the renewed attention paid to the role of Jewish people as, quote, a light of nations, which is how it's actually phrased in the Pesukim in Yeshayahu of being lit or goyim. And uh, Dr. Ariel continues, in order to highlight this role, the expression was changed to a light unto the nations of or la goyim. So in order to have the slogan, you have to amend the actual text. And, you know, that alone should tell you something where if you have to change, you know, the actual words in order to meet your contemporary ideas, well, that's not, you know, I'll actually take a step back. Um, it's certainly not going to be as emphatic or it's not going to be as universal as people might make it out to be. And then mm -hmm. you see what is the intent of it? Well, the intent is, well, you're supposed to be, you know, a role model in some way to the nations of the world. Um now, you do have a mention of uh, a concern within Torah, a few concerns where God seems to be concerned with his reputation. You've got Moshe that argues with God if, you know, what are the Gentiles going to say? You know, the nations of the world going to say if you destroy the Jewish, you brought the Jewish people out of Egypt only to destroy them in the desert. Or in Dvarim, uh, uh, Dvarim Dalet, uh, Hey and uh, Vav, you were told, keep the um, mitzvot, that by keeping the mitzvot, then the nations of the world will see like, you know, like, you know, how great and intelligent is this nation? But you get that from actually following the mitzvot. You mm. get into a very dangerous space theologically if you have other people dictating what you should or should not be doing based on the reputation. Right. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean to be a role model? You can say, well, be a role model is you're always seeking someone else's approval. Um, another way of saying it is, well, by sticking to your guns, you're serving mm -hmm. as a role model by bucking the trend. Mm -hmm. And typically you look at, say, today's political climate. Uh, one side's going to say, look how brave you are. And the other side you know, is going to say, look how immoral you are for you know, doing it is what you're doing. Um, 
I even ran in, yeah, like it, it's something which people are going to inevitably run into. So which side are you uh, going to follow? And are you going to change the fundamental tenets of your belief or practice because someone else doesn't like it and because it makes you know you look bad? Uh, mm -hmm. So I tied with this the idea of Hilul Hashem, which has a colloquial usage uh, from the Gemara Yoma of it's anything that, uh, you know, a Jew would, something that a Jew would do that would make other people look down on them. But what if that actually means performing the mitzvot? And this is the other idiom uh, usage of to be mechalel Hashem is by violating mitzvot, right? So you, it, it's, you know, people will focus on that first one. And I think it is important because we should be concerned with our reputation uh, and how we present ourselves to other people. Um, I would sooner tie this into what Ramban calls Naval Bishuta Torah, where yes, you may not be violating any strict statute, but if people say what you're doing is unethical or you know by our uh, by our standards of ethics, like okay, you know, you really shouldn't be doing that. Mm -hmm. At the same time, if people you know will look down on you for actually following halacha, well, that's a bit of a tension there, and that's a place where I think you know it, it is has much more room for, I don't want to say complexity, but I, I think that's where people don't want to ex uh, address that as much as it should if you have that content that contention between how people look at you for following halacha. Because you've got one usage of Chil Hashem versus another, and do you really want your faith and practice to be determined by other people in that way based on reputation? And if you say yes, then you have to be concerned with which people. And if one person can do it to satisfy one group of people, can another group of people do it to satisfy, you know, others? Hmm. Well said. Fascinating. Um, the next item on the agenda is love the stranger. Uh, yeah. The, the Gare and Jewish Society. Yeah, so that was one of the first things that inspired me to put all this together when I saw people quoting Vahavta Metegir to apply to uh, immigration. And that is you know, certainly complicated because, you know, again, discussing actual immigration policy as well be off my pay grade. But does the idiom of the Gare uh, work? Because uh, you know, the Gare has a bunch of rules attached to it. Uh, you can have illegal immigration, but you cannot have illegal gayers. Uh, one of the key components of gayers is you accept the halacha. And I would even distinguish here between the two types of gayer if people want to, between the gayer toshav and the gayer tzedek. Uh, but even there, uh, let's even just focus on the idea of accepting a gayer. There's no obligation to accept a gayer. Uh, you don't accept a gayer toshav unless the yovel is uh, observed. And the Gemara discusses that uh, we did not accept Gerim in the time of uh, David HaMelech or Shlomo HaMelech and won't accept Gerim in the time of Yimota Mashiach. So yes, all of the things about accepting the Ger are on the books and important. Do those necessarily apply to immigration? That's a much harder stretch because, again, if you don't have an uh, obligation to accept someone as a Ger, then if you apply that metaphor to immigration, you don't have an obligation to accept someone as an immigrant. Mm -hmm. um, and to be so, or, you know, certainly you, you've got conditions for becoming a gear. It's, uh, you know, not just uh, a general status of stranger, you actually have to do something for it in order to, uh, for lack of a better term, earn that status. So yes, you can say like, you may be able to use that to say, well, treating legal immigrants, people who have finished the process a little bit better and you know what, fine. Uh, but that's not always how it's used. So you know, here would be a case where people would say, oh, 
there's this uh, parallel, we can ex uh, extrapolate the values from this parallel to our contemporary situation, but they only take part of the data, not all of the data, because I could just as easily take similar sources on that same metaphor to reach a very different practical conclusion. Mm. Fascinating. And obviously today, I think a lot of people look at the idea of conversion, you know, with um, they, they, they're applying these ideas to the idea of loving the stranger. You know, it's the most repeated. I believe it's the most repeated mitzvah in the Torah, right? Um, well, there's, yeah, there's, uh, you know, I forget how many times uh, it says it's repeated in the Torah to stress just how important it is. Right. But many. Yes. Yeah, I think like 39 or something like that. Yeah. But um, okay, and then I think the last part I wanted to get into was uh, Tikkun Olam. That yeah, that, that is actually <laughs> with the rise of you know Kabbalah and the popularity of Kabbalah, people obviously um, take the idea of Tikkun in a very different way. Um, but from the Talmudic version of Tikkun Olam, maybe you can explain to the audience. Yeah. So this, I mean, for this, to, to explain just how often tikkun olam is used is almost a cliche now, um, you know, where people use it derisively as an insult, like, you know, someone's a tikkun olamnik. Um, you know, I, I think one of the more ridiculous cases that I saw is uh, a person dresses up as Santa, uh, and that's how he fulfills tikkun olam. And, you know, people will say that in a straight face. And I think this also gets to you know, a, a much bigger question, which we're not going to have time for about uh, Jewish values and you know, that entire paradigm or approach to uh, Judaism as a subset of values, that you have this idiom of tikkun olam that appears a few a uh, few times in rabbinic literature. Um, you know, there's no, to my, uh, there's no mitzvah to be mitaken olam. Like nowhere does God say, this is what you have to do. There's no mitzvah of tikkun olam in Chazal. From what I saw, uh, the in the what I did was I looked through. Well, what are the examples of tikkun olam in Chazal? And for the most part, they're a reason for acting certain, enacting certain takanot. They're reasons, justifications for here's why we are making these certain decrees. And I tried to figure out well, what are you know these decrees? How are they um, you know in any way fixing the world and trying to come up with uh, some pattern for it? But I should mention uh, there's no example of tikkun olam to my knowledge applied towards Gentiles and nothing at all with universalist implications. Um, you know they're very restrict um, uh, cases where they're brought up of this was forbidden because of tikkun olam. So for example. Um, uh, sending a, a, a canceling a get that was sent was uh, forbidden because of tikkun olam. Rabban Gamliel made that special takana. Uh, and that was a case where the uh, rights of the husband to nullify a get after it had been sent uh, was basically to prevent agunot because it was a right that the husband could easily abuse and cause a lot of issues. So you'll find some examples of tikkun olam of restrictions where you're not supposed to do something because should you do it, it's going to cause more problems. Uh, you also find it, um, you know, uh, I think I'll you know, skip ahead to the idea of the prisbal. And I think the prisbal like really encapsulates how I understood the application of tikkun olam, uh, where you have um, uh, debts that are nullified during the Shemitah. And by Torah law, uh, you're not supposed to withhold lending to borrowers, even though you know right before you know, the Shemitah comes, the uh, debt is going to be wiped out. 
So technically speaking, you know, pe people uh, at the time, you know, Hillel noticed, were not actually following the halacha, not following what they were supposed to do. So the way the Gemara explains uh, the principle was, it wasn't just you know to uh, uh, open the door for uh, lenders to borrow money. It was also advantageous to the borrowers and the lenders because you could easily look at the halakha by biblical law and say, well, this seems to be unjust because a poor person can go up to a wealthy person right before Shemitah and say, I want to borrow $25,000. Now you have now a biblical obligation to lend, even though you know, that's a huge amount of money and you know you're not going to get it back and it would be forbidden for you to try to get that back. Mm -hmm. And the way the Gemara describes the idea of the prisbal is that it was actually fair to both uh, the borrower and the lender. And that, you know, to me, was more of like a, a metaphor for you know, the tikkun olam, where if mm -hmm. you see a problem, how do you come up with a solution that, you know, all sides are taken care of? And this would be in a case where by rights, Hillel should have put the hammer down on the lender saying like, no, you're violating Torah law by not lending. You're actually in the wrong. So, you know, he came up with this, you know, again, solution that I don't want to say more authentic tikkun olam because you've got a, a bunch of different examples, but you know the point being about my approach isn't that you've got this general universal opinion of you know fix the world and fixing the world happens to be whatever I say it means. There were actual cases for which they were used, and you know we can argue about how often you know, relative and you know, where it appears in Chazal and things like that. But I think if you say here are all the examples where tikkun olam is used. What are there any themes? Um, you know, are there any commonalities? And maybe use that to extrapolate if you're going to say, here's how we should apply it today. Because for Chazal, it was very specific. These were reasons given for certain takanot within a very limited period of time. It's not something where Chazal all over the place come up with decrees this tikkun olam and tikkun olam right. that. Now, again, I also don't want to discourage for people from improving the world. Um, but you know, one of the reasons you know where, where tikkun olam I think is very attractive. I gave a parallel of this uh, to justice of tzedek tzedek tirdo. Well, great. How do you define justice? Right. And the way a lot of people operate with these sort of I, I call it a three step process of one, uh, find like a general biblical concept. Two, assign your particular beliefs to this biblical or rabbinic concept. Three, tell people that your ideas are actually mandated by Torah. So it comes to something like justice. Well, Torah says we need justice. Here's how I define justice. Therefore, Torah mandates what I'm trying to tell you. And you right. can say the same thing with tikkun olam. Well, Chazal did these, you know, in order to fix the world. Well, here's how I think the world ought to be fixed. Therefore, I now have a religious mandate to do all of these things. And once you start framing, you know, either you know political or whatever agendas within religious terms, you're not only you're sort of promoting yourself as like something that you know, let's say it could be neutral at, at best and at worst could actually violate halakha as being a religious imperative. But now you also get to start judging other people who disagree with you, not just, oh, I disagree with your opinion, but you acting differently than I you know, think the religion should be makes you a bad Jew. Now, again, it's something that, you know, Jews do all the time. They don't necessarily acknowledge it, but it's something that when you get to these grayer areas, especially when you can cite chapter and verses like, but you know, your interpretation here contradicts this explicit text here, things tend to break down. And when you reduce all of the things that we mentioned, like, again, I just did very quick capsule summaries. All of these could be an hour, at least sheer on their own, but they never get the, um, the attention they deserve. Like it's very easy to go to a rally, put Vahatim Vatagir on a billboard and hold that up. 
as opposed to, well, you know, does this actually represent in full what you're trying to convey? Uh, and you could do the same thing with any of the other ones mentioned and you know, some that not or pretty much any verse where if you're going to, uh, you know, there were, I forget what the slogan was, but like, you know, if you can fit your entire ideas on a sheet of paper on, on a billboard, you know, think harder. Um, so now maybe, you know, some could, if you really get down to it, uh, I, you made an analogy in one place to the Mishnah, or you can say that the Mishnah was in a way of condensing a lot of Torah into small memorable bites so we could transmit Torah Shabbat orally. But there's also a Gemara there. You don't just stop with the Mishnah. There's a whole lot more. And you have to know that there's a lot more there. And for the people who, you know, do know more, you know, it's even more imperative for them to present Torah accurately. And by, by which I mean, like no one can cover every source in every shear or every sermon or every lecture, but at least be mindful of the contradictory sources and don't pretend they don't exist. There's a very big difference I found in my own speaking of what are the types of claims you can make based on certain sources and what conclusions are you trying to get people to draw from what you're telling them? It's one thing if you know that all these contradictory sources exist and you can either hedge or mitigate some the uh, more general statements. You can pretend they don't exist and you know say, well, here are all the sources you need to know to the exclusion of everything else. That's where it starts getting dishonest. And for the people who don't know all of the sources, I would say, well, before you start invoking a term as a slogan, well, do the research and say, well, does this actually mean what you're trying to say that it means? And when you start promoting ideas without having done the homework, I think that's another type of dishonesty, even if it's not, say, uh, as malicious as suppressing sources, you know, yeah, do your homework it's, before it's, you start teaching. It's projection. That's what it, you mentioned it before. People people tend to, you know, see their own ideas in these idioms because they can kind of project their uh, their um, analysis of everything in, mm -hmm. in text. So, yeah, um, yeah and, and, and this was really like, I think eye-opening and I think our audience is going to be very, very pleased. Um, I want to first plug your blog, which is an amazing blog, joshuter.com and uh, Twitter. Um, you can find him. Is it at Rabbi Josh Uter? At Jay Uter. At Jay Uter. Yeah. Back in the day, like there was still a 140 character limit. And when you like retweeted someone, those, like the handle counted against it. So uh, keep it short. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Well, this was amazing. And I really thank you for making the time. I know it's hard uh, being that you're in Israel. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure being here. Hey, guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. Really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com slash Judaism. Pretty easy to remember. Thank you again, and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys. Mm -hmm.